Open up your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 5. Today we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. So we're going to complete the first paragraph of the book today. But in order to get the context of what's happening, we're going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 7. And then we're going to focus in on verses 6 and 7. So let's go ahead and read those verses together. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, now we pray for your power to attend your word, open up our hearts to receive it, and open up our wills to embrace and obey it. Lord, inflame us with love, seeing all that you have done for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last Sunday morning, we saw how Paul opened up this gospel by introducing himself. He tells us three things about himself. He tells us that he's a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He tells us that he's called as an apostle and that he has set apart for the gospel of God. He's bought, called, and set apart. He focuses on what God has done for him rather than what he has done for God. And then as soon as he mentions the word gospel, he can't just gloss over that. He, he loves the gospel so much that he goes off on a tangent for several verses to open up this gospel and tell us more about it. And he tells us that the gospel has to do with Jesus Christ. It's concerning God's Son. And he says a couple of things about Christ. He says, first of all, Christ is fully man. He was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. But he's not only fully man, he's fully God. But he's, he's also declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, even Jesus our Lord. And the third thing he tells us about Jesus is that he is the one through whom God's grace comes to us. Because he tells us in verse 5, it was through Christ that we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. Sometimes when the Bible talks about grace, it's talking about God's saving grace. His forgiveness and mercy by which we go from a state of condemnation to justification. That's not what Paul's talking about here. In verse 5, he's talking about serving grace. Grace to be called to ministry. Grace for God to bestow upon you a role to play within his body. And Paul's role was to be an apostle. 
And it was through God's grace that he received the gift of apostleship for the body of Christ. His, his objective was to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And his objective was to see people brought to faith, which would result in the fruit of obedience. Because that's really what living faith is. It's faith that results in obedience to Jesus Christ as Lord. And of course, the ultimate goal of all of that was for Christ's namesake, to make Jesus' name great, to spread his reputation and fame throughout the world. Well, that brings us to verses 6 and 7. Paul has introduced himself. He's introduced the gospel. He's introduced Jesus Christ. But now he wants to introduce the people he's writing to, to themselves. In other words, he wants to tell them two very important things about themselves. He uses two adjectives. Called and beloved. Called and beloved. And these two words are massively important words. That's why we're going to take a whole sermon to talk about just those two words today. They were called by God. They were beloved by God. And I believe this is our key to our identity as Christians. This is what makes a person a Christian. They're called by God and they're loved by God. So we're going to be pointing to what God has done for us, not what we do for God today. We're going to be looking at how God has called us and how God has loved us. And I want to ponder that with you this morning until it thrills your heart, until it causes you to rejoice in the Holy Spirit today. So first of all, let's talk about the first adjective. They were called. Verse 6 says, Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And in verse 7, called as saints. I want to ask four questions about this word called today. The first one is, who does the calling? Well, you say, Brian, that's easy. It says in verse 6, Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Well, let's not jump to conclusions because if you consult uh, most modern translations, they don't translate it the way the New American Standard does. Most modern translations translate this verse, among whom you also are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 9, this is how Paul puts it there, God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So I believe the idea here, called of Jesus Christ, is you were called to belong to Him, you were called to have fellowship with Him. So that really doesn't answer the question, who does the calling? I, I believe the same one does the calling that does the loving. In verse 7, we are beloved of God. I believe we are called of God, and we are loved of God. God is the one doing the loving. God is the one doing the calling. In other words, God is the active worker here. He is the one doing the activity. <laughs> we are the ones who are the passive recipients. We are the ones to whom God is acting upon. God is calling. We're not doing the calling. God is. We're not doing the loving in this passage. God is. He's working upon His people, and He's calling them, and He's loving them. 
And of course, he has to do the calling. We can't call ourselves because the Bible tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins when we were called. We had no capacity to be able to call ourselves. So who does God call? If God is the one doing the calling, who does he call? Does he call everybody? Well, this is confusing because if you study this word call in the Bible, you're going to notice that it's used in two different senses. For example, if you were to go to Matthew chapter 22 and look at the marriage feast, the king throws a marriage feast for his son over in Matthew 22. It's a parable that Jesus gives us. The word call is used there. In fact, let's, let's just actually read a few verses from Matthew 22. Verses 2 and 3. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with this parable. Well, what's interesting about the parable is that the same group of people who had been invited are also those who were called. You see that? The calling and the invitation are coextensive. Same people who are invited are called. So the calling that Jesus is talking about in this parable is more of an invitation. It's an extension, an offer, an invitation to come to Christ. Notice that this call can be refused because in verse 3 it says they were unwilling to come. They were called and they wouldn't answer the call. They wouldn't come. They were invited. They, they had other plans. They were too busy. They had want, wanted nothing to do with this marriage feast that the king was throwing for his son. So this is a call that can be refused. It's a call that is extended to all those who are invited. So what are we talking about here? What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about what I refer to as the gospel call. Okay? The gospel call is a call that goes out to everybody who hears the gospel. Whether they embrace the gospel or not, they have heard the call of the gospel. They are invited to salvation through Jesus Christ. But tragically, most of them are unwilling to come to Christ that they might have life. They hear the gospel call, but they don't answer it. Sometimes theologians refer to this call as the universal call or the external call. I don't think universal call is a good name for it because it's really not universal. There are millions of people around the world that have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. They haven't heard this gospel invitation. So gospel call is a good name for this particular kind of call. But then notice the last word, verse 14 of Jesus' parable. He says, for many are called, but few are chosen. So he makes a differentiation between those who are chosen and those who are called. Well, the call here is the gospel call. So, here on Sunday morning, if an unbeliever comes to church and I preach the gospel, they've just heard the gospel call. Or if Billy Graham preaches and 50,000 people hear him, they're hearing the gospel call. As missionaries go out throughout the world, the gospel call is being extended. Okay? So that's one sense in which the word call is used in the Bible. But it's actually very rare. There's only a few instances in the Gospels, where this kind of call is referred to. If you get into the epistles, from Romans through the rest of the epistles, when it talks about being called, it's not talking about the Gospel call. It's talking about something else. I'm going to refer to it as the effectual call. 
And the word effectual means it's effective in bringing about salvation. It's a call that's effective to bring a person into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And you say, well, okay, Brian, why do you think that when we come to Romans 1 and it's talking about being called, it's not talking about the gospel call, but it's talking about an effectual call, a call that actually brings a person into the possession of salvation. Well, I'll tell you why. It's because of how Paul uses the same word throughout Romans. And so I want to show you. We're going to take a little journey through Romans and look at how he uses this word call or called. Let's go over to Romans chapter 8 and take a look at how he uses the word there. Verse 28. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Now we love that part, but sometimes we ignore the rest of the verse. It's not for everybody in the world. That promise is made to a particular group of people. It's those who love God. And why in the world does anybody ever come to love God? Because they are called according to His purpose. The promise is made for those who love God. And let me explain to you what it means to love God. It means that you have been called according to God's purpose. See, the person who's called is not called according to their own purpose. They're calling, called according to God's purpose. So God has a purpose. He's working His purpose out in the world, and He's calling people according to that purpose, that predestined purpose of God Almighty. He continues in verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Notice he begins verse 29 with the word for. In other words, he's saying, let me explain to you what I just meant in verse 28. I talked about being called according to God's purpose. Well, let me explain that. For those whom he foreknew. In other words, the people who are called in verse 28 were previously foreknown by God. And those who were foreknown were predestined to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, God's Son. So all those who are called were foreknown. And you say, well, I know what foreknown means. That just means God knows ahead of time whatever's going to happen. No. It doesn't say for what God foreknew, does it? It says for whom. This is a group of people that God knew in advance. What it means is that God knew in advance whom he was going to save. He knew because he planned in advance whom he was going to save. That's what the meaning of foreknowledge. The word know in the Old Testament carries the connotation of intimacy or love. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore him a son. That's talking about an intimate relationship there. Jesus said on the final day there will be many. He will say, I never knew you. What does he mean? I never knew anything about you? No, he says, I never had a saving relationship with you. That's what it means to know somebody in Scripture. To foreknow someone means to plan in advance to come into this saving relationship with this group of people. So those people that he foreknew or ordained that he would have a saving relationship with, he predestined to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, God has predestined you to become like Christ. It's done. Period. I mean, it's, it's over. It's going to happen because God has already determined it. And then in verse 30, 
And these whom he predestined, he also called. There's our word. It starts with foreknowledge. It continues with predestination. It continues on with being called. And then the next word is, and these whom he called, he also justified. Now, how many of those people that God calls are justified? Every single one. Every single one that God calls is justified. That tells me this is not a gospel call, right? Because many who hear the gospel are unwilling to come. This is the effectual call that results in justification. You understand the word justification? You are declared righteous in the sight of God. God imputes his own righteousness to you through what Christ accomplished at the cross. And those who are justified, he also glorified. Every person who is called is forgiven of their sins, credited with Christ's righteousness, and will be his body will be glorified, and he will be with Christ forever in glory. So we're talking here about the effectual call. Now flip a page to chapter 9, and let's pick up Paul's thought in verse 21. He's talking about how so many of the Israelites did not believe in Christ. And does that make the promise of God of no effect? And he's saying, no, no, because God never promised to save every ethnic Jew. He promised to save a remnant of Israel. That's his thought. But let's pick it up in verse 21. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What do you think? Does the potter have a right to do that? Of course. Right? Because he's the potter. <laughs> That's his clay. He can do with it whatever he wants to do. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called. Now, I don't want you to miss what's happening here. Paul identifies who's being called in verse 24. It's us. He's writing to the believers in Rome. It's us. We have been called. Well, okay, we've been called according to what? According to God's purpose. What was his purpose? Well, he explains it in verse 22 and 23. There are two lumps. Right? He takes the, the single lump and he divides them into two. There's one lump that's going to be made into a vessel for common use. He takes the other lump and he's going to make that into a vessel for honorable use. The one lump is called vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Verse 22. The other lump is made into vessels of mercy which God prepared beforehand for glory. And that is the group or those are the vessels in verse 24 that are called. So what I want you to see is that God's election is completely and absolutely consistent with those who are called. First, he elects, and he does that before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1.4. He makes a choice, and then at the right time, he calls. He calls effectively. He overcomes all resistance that that person has, and we all do. It's our sin 
We want to hold on to our sin. And God becomes so powerfully attractive to us that he overcomes all resistance. And so we run to him. That's why we call this irresistible grace, because God makes it so irresisting. If he didn't do that, would never come. None of us would come. Because we love our sin and we hate the light. God has got to do something so powerful that we can't help ourselves, that we must come running to Jesus Christ. And you say, well, Brian, isn't that unjust of God to only call some and not call everybody? If God calls some people, doesn't that mean he ought to call everybody? And isn't he wrong not to call everybody if he only calls some? Well, let's think that through for a minute. That would only be correct if everybody deserves to be called. If everybody has a right to be called. But the problem is, nobody deserves to be called. And nobody has a right to God's favor because we're all miserably fallen and corrupt sinners. We've sinned away any right to God's mercy. We're all under the death sentence. We're all under the sentence of condemnation, under the wrath of God. If God decides to call somebody, it's not going to be because they had a right to it or because they deserved it. What's it going to be according to? His grace. Remember that we read from Galatians 1.15 last week. And I'm going to refer to it again because Paul's going to help us understand the basis for this call. He says in Galatians 1.15, But when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His, what? Grace. Grace. God calls through grace. Or look at 2 Timothy verse, or chapter 1 verse 9. This is a powerful verse. God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from when? All eternity. God's purpose and God's grace was granted to us in Christ from all eternity. It had nothing to do with your works. If you have been called by God, it wasn't because you deserved it. It wasn't because you worked real hard to get it. It was because God was gracious and generous and merciful towards you. And out of the free, spontaneous love of his heart, he poured out this grace to call you and to bring you to him. So no, it, it's not unjust for God not to call everybody. If God were to be completely just with every person in the world, every one of us would end up in hell. Because that's what we deserve, and that's what we have a right to because of our sin. But if God extends mercy... He's overruling justice and that's those situations and he's extending his sovereign mercy. It's like if the governor, 10 people are on death row and the governor decides to pardon one of them. He's not unjust to the other nine, right? Because the other nine are getting exactly what they deserve. He's just being merciful to the one. So that's the answer to the question, who does God call? He calls his own elect. He calls the ones he has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And it's only those that he calls. And when he calls, they come and they believe and they repent. And he overcomes all resistance so they come running freely to Jesus Christ. Well, let's talk about the third question. What is God's call? 
Well, we know that it's not merely an invitation by now. If it were, none of us would ever be saved. It has to be more than that because we're so entrenched in our sin. Jesus said that they loved darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil, their deeds were evil and they would not come to the light because those deeds would be exposed. And so if we, if we love the darkness, something's got to change within our heart. Do you see that? Our love has to change. We'll never come as long as we love darkness. Well, how does a person ever stop loving darkness and start loving light? That's something that goes on the inside of his nature, right? His heart. And we can't just snap our fingers and say, okay, I'm going to change my heart today. You are who you are, right? It's like the leopard saying, I'm just going to decide to have stripes instead of spots today. Well, no, you're not. You are a leopard. So how is this ever going to happen? God extends a divine summons, not just an invitation, a divine summons which is attended with divine power, enabling repentance and faith. I've told this illustration before, but let me do it again because it's such a good one. <laughs> There's a dad trying to watch TV after a hard day's work. He's in front watching the news and his three little boys are just horsing around. And they're running around the room screaming, screaming and s giggling. And, and the dad's getting irritated because he wants to watch what's on the news. And so he says, boys, stop horsing around. I'm watching TV. But they pay him no mind. They ignore him. They just keep running around and giggling and laughing. And he gets a little bit more irrit irritated. He says, boys, I said, stop horsing around. They don't pay him any mind. They just keep running around, giggling and laughing. And finally he says, boys, come here. I said, stop. And they come before their dad just terrified. That's the effectual call. He gets their attention. He gets them to go on a new course of action. That's what we mean by being called. It's not just to hear an invitation. It's to be summoned by the king himself into his presence. See, Calling is synonymous with regeneration. You guys know what I mean by regeneration? Born again. If you're a Christian, you've been born again. You've experienced a new birth. The new birth is the calling. Because in the new birth, the heart is changed. We stop loving darkness and we start loving light. Why? Because God is working. He's tinkering on the inside of your heart. He's changing your very nature at the core. Now, you can't make that change. You can't change your own nature. But God can. And that's what has to happen for you to become a Christian. Your nature has to be, undergo a transformation. God has to remove the old heart of flesh and give you, or old heart of stone rather, and give you a heart of flesh. So that's what we mean by the call. Now what does God's call result in? Let's go back to Romans 1. Verse 7 says, called as saints. The word as has been added by the translators. Literally, the Greek says, called saints. And most of the modern translations translate it, called to be saints. I think that's probably right. That's probably what Paul meant. Called to become God's own saints. Now, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. 
For the first 18 years of my life, that's the church I attended. And in my understanding, a saint was one of those really, really holy guys that died and went to heaven, and you prayed to them because they were close to Mary or they were close to Jesus, and they could get your prayers answered. You know, like if you wanted safety, you prayed to St. Christopher, and he would help you have a safe travel. Can you imagine my shock when I started to read the Bible and I found out every Christian is a saint? And I was one? (laughs) I was a saint? That's the shocker of all shockers. Brian Anderson, a saint. But that's what the Bible says. Every Christian who has been called into relationship with Christ is also called to become a saint. Now, what's a saint? No, it's not a especially holy guy who's gone off to heaven. A saint is a holy one. That's literally what the word means. A holy one. Every Christian is a holy one. It means they have been set apart from the rest of the world to Christ. That's the root meaning of sanctification, to being set apart. In the Old Testament, you had holy vessels and holy days and holy festivals. All those things were set apart from mundane common use, and they were set apart to God. A holy one, a saint, is someone who has been set apart from the world to God. The Greek word for ekklesia, or I'm sorry, for church, ekklesia, it comes from the root ek, which means out of, and klesia, to call. So the ekklesia or the church are the called out ones. If you're part of God's church, you've been called out of sin, out of the world, out of the realm where the flesh dominated your life, and you've been called into this living organism called the church of Jesus Christ. And Christ's church extends around the world. Every born-again believer is a member of this body. So you are a saint. You're a holy one. You're, You're a saint, first of all, because you've been justified. Christ's holiness covers you. And you're a saint, secondly, because you are being sanctified. The Spirit of God is working in you to make you into the image of Christ, to make you progressively holy. So, number one, God's call results in becoming saints. Secondly, God's call results in a person beholding the glory of Christ. Now, we're going to have to go to 1 Corinthians 1 to see this one. So go over to the next book, chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 22. Paul writes here, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now meditate on those verses with me, because it's very, very powerful. Paul says, I preach to Greeks and I preach to Jews. I extend the gospel call to all men, Greeks and Jews, Jews and Gentiles. But the problem is that when I preach to the the Greeks, it seems like foolishness. And when I preach Christ crucified to the Gentiles, they're stumbled by that. Well, Paul, does that mean that nobody is going to receive Christ for who he is? No, no, it doesn't mean that because there's another group. (laughs) There's the Jews, there's the Greeks. But verse 24 says, but to those who are the called, something else happens. They don't see Christ as foolishness or a stumbling block, do they? 
They see him as the wisdom of God and the power of God. Now, how did they go from seeing him as foolishness to seeing him as the wisdom of God? Or how did they go from seeing him as weakness to seeing him as the power of God? The answer is in verse 24. God called him. That's how it happened. They saw something in Christ they had not seen before. They were blind before to the glory of Christ, and now they see it. Why? Because he called them. That's why. Notice verse 26. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen. Notice that chosen and calling are talking about the same group. Do you see that in the context? Verse 26 talks about consider your calling. Verse 27, but God has chosen, same group of people, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Now notice verse 30, but by... Your doing? No. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom? That's how we see Christ as the wisdom of God. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God has devised salvation in such a way that none of us can ever take any credit for it. We can't boast because it wasn't our doing that got us into Christ. It was His doing. He called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. He opened our eyes. So when God calls a person, He awakens the dead. He opens blind eyes. He unstops deaf ears. He softens hard hearts. He humbles proud people. And He brings forth living faith in Jesus Christ. So when we go to Romans 1... And Paul introduces the people who are going to be receiving this letter. And he says, you are the called. Folks, that meant something to them. <laughs> that meant something huge. God has bestowed special, distinguishing, sovereign mercy upon me. Not everybody was called, but I was. It should fill you with a sense of, oh my goodness, God, God loves me. I'm special. God, God took pity upon me when he didn't have to. Well, let's look at the second word. It's the word beloved. And I'm just going to use the word loved. We're called and we're loved. The first question that comes to us this morning is, okay, does God love everyone the same? Now, I was raised to say, well, of course he does. That's a stupid question. Of course, everybody knows God loves everyone exactly the same. Well, I want you to think about that this morning. Think it through. Look what he says in Romans 1.7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome. What does he mean? Of all those who live in Rome, I'm writing to those who are beloved of God. Did you see? To all who are beloved of God in Rome is this letter written. In other words, these people are the ones that God has set His special love upon. Well, are you saying, Brian, that God doesn't love everybody? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that God loves everybody in one sense, 
and he loves his own special people in another. I'm not trying to shrink God's love. I'm trying to expand your understanding of God's love. The love of God is not such a, sim a simple doctrine. In fact, D.A. Carson wrote a book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, because it's, you can see why it's difficult. It's not just a across-the-board blanket, God loves everyone the same, period, we're all done. No, it's, it, there's depth to understanding the love of God. Well, is it true that God loves everyone in the world? Do we have scripture that would su substantiate that? Well, you're probably thinking of John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, I know some people would say, well, world there simply means the elect in the world. I, I don't take that position myself. I, I think he's talking about the world of sinners. The world is usually talking about a world in alienation from God. God so loved this wicked, alienated world that he gave his son. He offers his son to this wicked world. Uh, what about Matthew chapter 5? In the Sermon on the Mount, Pastor Jerome's going to get to this someday. <laughs> but he will. Uh, Matthew 5, look at verse 44 and 45. Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see his point? Love your enemies. Why? So that you can be sons of God. So that you can resemble God because God loves his enemies. How does he love them? He sends rain to them. He sends, uh, his sun shines on them. His, the rain brings b crops and blessings to them. He provides them with food to eat. God loves the wicked and the righteous. And he says, you need to be like your father. You need to be sons of God. So I understand these verses to be meaning, yes, there is a love of God for the world, a love of benevolence, kindness, pity. But there is another kind of love that God has for his own people, for his church, which is different. Why do I think that? Because the Bible describes that kind of love everywhere. It's what we usually read about when we read about the love of God in the Bible. It's this special, distinguishing, covenant, saving love. Amen. Let's take a look at some of those passages. We're going to look at a lot of them this morning. I think there's seven in a row. And we're going to go through these pretty quick. But turn over to Romans 9. Here we're back in good old Romans 9. We were just there. But again, Paul is helping us to understand that God has not broken his promise because not all Israelites are being saved. His promise was to save a remnant from Israel. And he says in verse 11, he's talking about uh, Isaac and Rebekah's twin boys, Jacob and Esau. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. That's exactly opposite to what it should have been because Esau was the older one. Now he's going to serve Jacob, who's the younger one. God's flip-flopping what normally would happen. Verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, if there is no other 
kind of love other than God's general love for the world, verse 13 doesn't make any sense. Right? How can God hate somebody and still love them the same as he loves the person? Well, how can, how can it say that God hated Esau and still love him exactly the same as his love for Jacob? That doesn't make any sense. Obviously, there's a difference in God's relationship towards Esau and his relationship towards Jacob. You see, God determined he was going to do something for Jacob that was so precious, and he was not going to give that same thing to Esau, that it seemed like it was hatred when the two were compared. What did God do for Jacob? He selected him to be that line through whom Messiah would come. He spoke to him. He gave him promises. Abraham, Isaac, not Esau, Jacob. Jacob was chosen to be in the line through whom Messiah would come. So here's a verse that tells us that God's love is distinguishing. It's different from one person to another. Well, Brian, if that's the only one, I don't believe what you're talking about. Well, let's look at some more. Let's go over to Ephesians 1. Verse 4 and 5, but we're going to pick it up at the end of verse 4. The last two words. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. How did God predestine people to adoption? In love. It was because of his love that he predestined people to adoption as sons. What does it mean to be predestined to adoption as sons? It's talking about becoming saved, right? We're taken out of Satan's family. Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. Taken out of that wicked family and brought into God's own family and treated like his own son. That's talking about salvation. Well, the reason that happened to anybody was because God loved them. The love precedes the adoption. Or flip over to chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But... God. Two most important words in this, maybe in all the Bible. <laughs> but God, they make all the difference in the world for every person. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 5 is talking about the new birth, being made alive. Why does it happen? Verse 4 tells us it's because God was rich in mercy and it was because of His great love. Now, not every person is born again. The new birth is a result of this great love, not just a general, ordinary love, a great love. The love that we read about in Ephesians 1.5, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons. This is the same love that caused us to be born again and made alive together with Christ. We are taking out of a state of spiritual death, dominated by the world, the flesh, the devil, and under the wrath of God. And in that condition, God made us alive because of His great love for us. 
Colossians 3, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. I want you to notice how often, how so often in the Bible, being chosen is coupled and linked with being called and being loved. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, the same people that are called are those who are beloved of God. Or go over to 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. See it again? When I first saw this, I was amazed. I, everywhere I started to look, I wow, this, the love of God is linked with His choice. It, it's, a, it's a sovereign love. It's a distinguishing, special love. It's a covenant love. It's, it's different from His general love to all mankind. Or how about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Paul says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. There it is again. Beloved by God and chosen for salvation. Or how about Jude? That little tiny book right in front of the book of Revelation. And I'm just going to read verse 1 of Jude. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Those who are beloved in God the Father are also the called. So I want you to expand your thinking. If you've never thought along these lines before, and you need to understand, if you are a genuine Christian, God loves you with a depth that you have never comprehended. In fact, no, we, well, none of us will ever really be able to get the full extent of His love this side of glory. Paul prays in Ephesians 3, he prays that they would understand the breadth and the length and the height and depth of the love of God. That's why, because we're getting to something that is so powerful and so amazing that we can't get to the bottom of it. So God has a special love for His elect people. Now, I can think I can safely say that I love all people. And because I love all people, I love all women. But does that mean that I have the same kind of love for all women in the world as I have for my bride? No. Better not be. <laughs> and it's not true. I have a very special covenant love between my wife and myself, and I don't share that kind of love with any other woman in the world. You see, God has a special love for his bride, his church, and he doesn't have the same kind of love for all the rest of mankind. Or, or, or you folks, you probably could say, yeah, you know, I love all these kids in my neighborhood, all these kids running up and down the street on their bikes. I really love these kids. But does that mean that you love them exactly the same as you do your own children? No. There's a special love between you and your own children. Now, why does God love the elect? You're probably wondering, well, why, why, did, why does he love me then? I know, it's because I was a little bit more lovable than all those other people. <laughs> God saw my heart, and he really knew deep down that there's really a good heart down there. <laughs> right? That's why God did it. 
Why does God love the elect? Let's, the only verse I know that can shed any light at all on this is Deuteronomy chapter 7. So let's look at that. And here we're talking about God's people of the Old Covenant. And we're going to see why God loved His people in the Old Covenant. And if it's true that He loved His Old Covenant people like that, then I would assume it's also true that's why He loves His New Covenant people. Well, let's see. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you or choose you. Now notice here, to choose them is the same as setting His love on them. Election and love go hand in hand. Okay? God didn't set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Israel didn't say, I know why God loves us, because we were just the most mighty, powerful, biggest nation on the earth. He couldn't help but loving us. That wasn't true. They were the smallest. God chose the smallest nation. Here it comes, verse 8. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Verse 7. The Lord didn't love you because you were more in number. Verse 8, the Lord loved you because why? Because He loved you. That's what it says. But because the Lord loved you. what That doesn't make any sense. Well, it does to God. <laughs> it makes perfect sense to God. It doesn't make any sense to us because we're looking at how we differ from each other and how one person's better than another. God loved you because He loved you. He made a decision to love you. The Lord has mercy on whom He will have mercy. God loves whom He will love. And if you are called, you are loved by God with this deep, incredible, sovereign love that <laughs> I can't understand it, and I'm sure you can't either. It just blows me away to consider it's an everlasting love. He didn't set His love on you when you came to Christ. He set His love on you before the foundation of the world. And that's that's why you came to Christ. That's why you were called. That's why you were adopted into His family. Next question. What does God's electing love include? I mean, what does it look like? What? We're trying to understand it. What does it look like for God to love someone in this way? Well, turn over to Romans 8 and look at verse 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Well, what do you mean we overwhelmingly conquer? Overwhelmingly conquer what? Verse 35, we overwhelmingly conquer tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. Why? We, well, we do it through Him who loved us. That's how we do it. We conquer through the One who loved us. Well, what does it look like for God to love somebody? I think verses 28 to 39 of the book of Romans describe for us God's love, what it looks like in a person's life. So let's just take a look quickly at those verses. It means, first of all, that He works all things together for good for that person. Verse 28. 
It's not saying that everything in and of itself is good or feels good. It means that he's working all these things together for the result that it will be good in your life. God has your best interests at heart. Even when it hurts, even when you suffer, even when it's hard, he's still working for your good. Secondly, he loves you by conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. That's verse 29. It's God's love that's actively working in you to make you like his son. It would be hatred to leave you in your sin, but he loves you. Not only that, but his love is expressed in calling you. Verse 30. We've discussed that at length. Not only that, he shows his love by justifying you. Verse 30. He declares you righteous. As if you had never committed a sin in your life, absolutely holy in every respect, God looks on you as perfect. That's... He does that because he loves you. Five, he shows his love by glorifying you. That's at the end of verse 30. All those who are justified are glorified. Do you notice how he put it there? And these whom he justified, he also glorified. He puts it in the past tense. But wait a minute, I haven't actually been glorified yet. But in God's mind, it's as good as done. It's absolutely guaranteed. Nothing can stop it from happening. You're glorified in the purpose of God. And then we're told that he loves us by being for us. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? Did you know God's for you? We, we sang this morning about God being our friend. God's not against you. He's not your enemy. Once he was. Romans 5 tells us that. If while we're enemies, we're reconciled to God. We were enemies of God. We're no longer enemies. We're friends. We're reconciled. He's on your side. He's pulling for you. He's exercising his attributes on your behalf. He is for you to the end because he loves you. Not only that, but he delivered up his own son for you. Verse 32. He who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? There's two things here. Number one, he gave Jesus for you. That's the greatest demonstration of love. But then secondly, he's going to give you everything else you need until you get to heaven. That's what I believe that's what he means in verse 32. If he gave the greatest thing possible, surely he's going to give all these lesser things that you need on your way to glory. If you need perseverance, you've got it. If you need the power of the Spirit, it's yours. If you need comfort, God will grant you comfort. If you need wisdom or enlightenment, God will give you those things. And then we also are told that He loves us, and the way we know that is because He has purpose that He will never withdraw His love from you or me. Verse 38 and 39. Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This love is so strong that nothing can rip you away from it. And you might wonder, well, how do I know I can make it to the end? Do I have what it takes? No, you don't. But God has what it takes to keep you. God is not going to allow you to be separated from his love. There is an awesome verse. I, this is just one of my favorites, Jeremiah 32, 40. And I think I, I just want to read that one before we conclude. 
Jeremiah 32, verse 40. God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Okay, think on that. God says, I promise I'm not going to turn away from you to do you good. I'm going to do you good all your life. That's, that's Romans 8.28. He's causing all things to work together for good and he's not going to stop. And he's going to pursue you with goodness. Psalm 23. But that's only half of it. He's going to put the fear of him inside our hearts so that we will never turn away from him. Now, if he won't turn away from you and you won't turn away from him, that means there's no possible way for you to ever be lost. So I, I'm, I hope you're, you're getting a deluge of love just poured all over you this morning. <laughs> I hope you can sense this deep, sovereign, powerful love that, that it was there before you even knew about it. We discovered it only after being called in by His grace into His family. And then, wow, we, our minds are expanding. We're starting to see, God, you love me like that? That is absolutely amazing. So Christian, this is who you are. You are called and you are beloved of God. That's your identity. And we need to feed on those truths. We need to feed on them, to think on them, to remember them. What's going to give you the power to resist sin and to walk with God and to overcome the flesh and the devil in your life? I believe it's only by meditating on truths like this that we've seen this morning. What, what's going to give you the comfort you need to go through those trials without forsaking the Lord and giving up on your relationship with Christ? It's by knowing that He called you and knowing that He loves you and that He's for you and nothing can successfully stand against you. So I want you to allow... God to fill you with his strength to resist sin and serve God with all your heart because he loves you and he has called you. Saints, let's give him glory. Lord, we give you honor and glory. You are worthy, Lord, because you are the one who has done this calling. And even before we knew anything about it, Lord, you had set your love on us. We're humbled, Lord, to know it had nothing to do with us. We still don't understand by what criteria you made your decision, but it doesn't matter, Lord. You are God, and you have the right to do whatever you want. We are just so thrilled, Lord, with this, this great love that you have for us. And I, I pray for each one of us here, Lord, that you'd help us to remember that in the dark days, to know that you're for us. In Jesus' name, amen.